The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Frank Holland, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show is live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. It is 5 a.m. here at CNBC Global Headquarters, and here is your 5 at 5. We start with breaking news. The U.S. and its allies launched a coordinated strike against Houthi rebel targets in Yemen after weeks of Red Sea attacks on merchant ships. Oil moving sharply higher on the news as the risk premium for crude, it continues to grow. Turning to Wall Street, the Dow, it hits an all-time high despite that hotter-than-expected inflation report. But futures this morning, they are under pressure. And today, investor attention turns to the kickoff of earnings season and the string of major U.S. bank reports that are coming out before the opening bell. We're going to give you the setup. Plus, big moves and bigger volume for Bitcoin's first day of spot trading ETFs. It's Friday, January 12, 2024. You are watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. Friday. Welcome to Worldwide Exchange. I am Frank Holland. Let's get you ready to start your day. Uh, as always, we kick off this hour with a check on U.S. stock futures after a mostly higher session yesterday that saw the Dow hit a fresh intraday all-time high. Take a look. Bit of a mixed picture right now. The Dow looking like it would open up more than 50 points higher. The S&P basically flat. It's the Nasdaq under a bit of pressure. For the week, stocks are bouncing back after the first down week in 10. The Nasdaq leading by a wide margin. You can see it right here, riding a five-day win streak and on pace for its best week since November. You see the Nasdaq up 3% on the week. So speaking of the Nasdaq and tech, we continue to watch the difficult start for Apple in 2024. Microsoft very briefly overtaking the iPhone maker as the most valuable public U.S. company by market cap. Taking a look right now, you see just how narrow this gap really is. Apple at $2.88 trillion, uh, Microsoft at $2.85. So, again, this is the narrowest gap we've seen in quite some time. We're also checking the bond market after yesterday's hotter-than-expected inflation read and ahead of today's PPI report. Taking a look right now, we're seeing yields still back below 4%. They topped 4% yesterday. We'll continue to watch yields throughout the morning. And... Coming off a very big day for Bitcoin in the first trades of those spot ETFs, the group of 11 ETF issuers seeing a collective $4.6 billion in volume on their first day of trading. That's according to LSEG. The Wisdom Tree Bitcoin Fund, Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, and the ARK21 Shares Bitcoin ETF seeing some massive inflows. Taking a look at the action right now. Uh, all three in the red right now. We'll continue to watch these throughout the morning uh, as well as the moves in cryptocurrency in general. Okay. That is your morning setup. Now, let's get to this morning's breaking news. The U.S. and U.K. launching a series of airstrikes overnight against Houthi military targets in Yemen. These attacks are in response to weeks of rebel attacks on ships in the Red Sea. The rebels defying ongoing warnings from the White House. Oil moving sharply higher in response to those attacks. You can see right here, WTI up almost 3%. Brent crude pretty close to that same level. Let's now send it out to NBC's Ali Aruzi in Tehran with the very latest. Ali, good morning. Good morning. So there have been repeated warnings from the international community to the Houthis to stop their attacks in the Red Sea. A maritime coalition was formed 
to protect commercial shipping and deter the Houthis. But despite warning after warning, the Houthis kept up their attacks, each one seemingly more spectacular than the last, including against uh, U.S. and U.K. warships just this last week. So after these latest warnings, a strike felt imminent. And in the early hours, the U.S. and the U.K., along with support from other coalition members, hit the Houthis hard. Uh, strikes were reported in the capital, Sana, in the Houthi Red Sea port of Hudaya, Dahmar, and northwestern Houthi stronghold of Sada. Uh, there were reported uh, 60 strikes from air and sea, including over 100 missiles and precision-guided munitions, hitting 16 militant locations, including command centers, air defense radar systems, production facilities, ammunition depots, and drone storage depots, which is critical as the Houthis have used drones as one of their main forms of attack. Now, this marks the first strike against the Houthis since the October 7th attacks. President Biden says the strikes are in response to attacks by the Iranian-backed Houthis on ships in the Red Sea since November, and it's hardly surprising. The attacks by the Iranian-backed Houthis on ships in the Red Sea have seriously disrupted trade and the flow of fuel and goods, rising uh, shipping costs, fuel costs, insurance costs, forcing commercial vessels to take the long way around from Asia to Europe, uh, around the Cape of Good Hope. This was clearly untenable. Uh, now, this morning, the Houthis' deputy foreign minister has warned the U.S. and the U.K., saying that uh, they'll pay a heavy price for this blatant aggression and that the attacks on the Red Sea will continue. Iran has unsurprisingly strongly condemned the attacks uh, against uh, the U.S. and British military, uh, calling them an arbitrary action and a violation of the country's sovereignty. Frank? All right. NBC's Ali Aruzi. Ali, thank you very much. Turn our attention now to the White House and President Biden promising more strikes if the attacks on ships in the Red Sea do not stop. NBC's Drew Petramu joins me now from Washington with the very latest on this end of the story. Drew, good morning. Well, good morning, Frank. I just want to read a little bit from a statement that the president put out last night. He says that in my direction, the U.S. military forces together with the U.K. and with support from Australia and Bahrain and Canada, also, the Netherlands successfully conducted strikes against a number of targets in Yemen used by Houthi rebels to endanger freedom of navigation in one of the world's most vital waterways. Now, he went on to say that he will not hesitate to direct further measures to protect the people and free flow of international commerce as necessary. Now, these uh, targets were uh, seen by the president and allies as vital to reopening those critical uh, navigable waterways uh, in the area that is crucial to uh, global economy. Uh, again, the, also uh, the Houthi spokesman, uh, as a previous reporter talked about, also uh, commenting and promising revenge for those attacks, calling them the greatest folly in the history of the U.S. and Britain. This tit for tat, uh, there's a lot of uh, the common thinking is that there's a lot of incentive for all sides to not continue to escalate, but there is also worry that this tit-for-tat could lead to further escalation in the region. Frank? All right. NBC's Drew Petramu at the White House. Drew, thank you very much. All right. We're checking U.S. stock futures once again following these attacks, taking a look. Still a bit of a mixed picture. Looks like the Dow would open up about 45 points higher off of its highs of earlier, but it's the Nasdaq that's under pressure. The S&P slightly lower, but still pretty close to flat. Let's get the check on the global market reaction as well. Our Jamana Bersetti is live in our London newsroom with much more. Jamana, good morning. Good morning, Frank. Well, at a headline level, you can see that most of these indices are, are brushing off some of the geopolitical developments overnight. We have the Shanghai Composite in China 
down just a little bit, down about a tenth of a percent. A lot of focus there on the data that's come through. Still in deflation, China year-on-year CPI minus 3.7 percent. You counter that with better-than-expected trade data with exports picking up throughout the course of December, up 2.3 percent on the month. And that paints a picture of uh, deflation combined with slightly better trade export numbers for China. Hang Seng also dipping somewhat down three-tenths of a percent. Nikkei, what a spectacular run it's had the last couple of weeks, up 1.5 percent today, up 6 percent in the first couple of weeks, trading weeks of the year. This has been this be- its best week in the last 22 months. So that uh, strength continues within the Nikkei. But over here in Europe, you can see that uh, pretty much all of those geopolitical concerns have been brushed up. Every single one of these indices is trading in the green. FTSE 100 up two-thirds of a percent. There's one name we're watching closely, that is Burberry. It was down almost double digits at one point this morning, dragging down the luxury complex, disappointing sales in North America. But uh, there has been a market reaction in oil and gas this morning with Brent up almost 3%. So that's lifting some of the oil and gas and basic resources names within the FTSE 100. DAX also in focus up 8 tenths of a percent, seeing a bounce in industrials. And then Kekaron's also up 1% despite the weakness in luxury. And then finally, let me just end with some of the key defense stocks over here in Europe. Obviously a focus this morning and no surprise, Frank, to see that every single one of these defense companies is trading in the green. Yeah, not surprising at all. Our Germana Brissetti live in our London newsroom. Germana, thank you very much. All right, turn our attention now to some of this morning's top corporate stories. Our Silvana Hanau is here with those. Silvana, good morning. Hey, Frank, good Friday morning to you. Well, sticking with the ongoing disruption in the Red Sea, Tesla says it will suspend most car production at its Berlin factory from January 29th to February 11th, and that's due to shipping disruptions in those waters. The announcement makes Tesla, which relies heavily on China for key parts, the first company to divulge a production interruption due to the turmoil in the Red Sea. Other companies, including Chinese automaker Geely and Ikea, have previously warned of delivery delays. Tesla shares down about 2% in the pre-market. Fresh off similar news from Amazon's Prime Video and MGM Studios, Disney-owned Pixar Animation reportedly planning to cut hundreds of jobs following the completion of some of its shows. TechCrunch says the layoffs are not imminent and will likely take place in the next year as Pixar looks to make less content. The number of impacted employees is still being determined, though sources say the layoffs could be as high as 20 percent of Pixar's 1,300 person workforce. And as we mentioned earlier by Jumana, the latest read on China's consumer prices stoking more deflation fears. In December, China CPI fell by 0.3 percent, marking the longest streak of decline since 2009. Factory gate costs dropping 2.7 percent due to lower commodity prices and weaker foreign demand, while overall exports slipped by more than Four and a half percent. And there is a muted reaction to the data with a number of investors already betting on the possibility of a policy rate cut next week, Frank. We're seeing the reaction of CPI in China. We have PPI here in the U.S. later today. Silvana, thank you. We'll see you later in the show. All right. A lot more to come here on Worldwide Exchange, including much more market reaction to the rising Mideast tension. Our expert market panel lays out the risks that investors need to know for the day ahead. Plus, the big banks, they mark the kickoff to what will be a very closely watched earnings season. The one thing you need to track coming up. And later, we're going to dig into the big business of pet health care. We speak with a major player, Zoetis, on how it's staying ahead in the $45 billion animal health care industry. A very busy hour still ahead when Worldwide Exchange returns. Stay with us. 
Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. All right, welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Taiwan is holding presidential and parliamentary elections tomorrow, and investors are bracing for a potentially volatile reaction. The island nation is the first major economy to head to the polls this year. This vote comes as tensions are rising with China, which claims Taiwan as its own territory. China has been very vocal about its opposition to the election, calling it a choice between peace and war. Despite those jitters, Taiwan's stock market rose 27% last year, its best performance since 2009, with foreign investors pouring in nearly $3.5 billion into Taiwan equities. Let's talk much more about the market impact of this weekend's election. Vivian Lynn Thurston is a partner at William Blair, also a portfolio manager of the firm's China A shares, China Growth, Emerging Markets Growth, and Emerging Markets X China Growth Funds. Vivian, good morning. It is really great to have you here. Good morning, Frank. All right, so- good to be here. So this election's coming up tomorrow. There are three major parties in the election. I want to get to the parties in just a second. But first, I want to talk about the potential investor impact. So in the short term, what do these elections mean for, you know, the Taiwan weighted index for China and also some of these funds that you manage that have exposure to emerging markets, China and Taiwan? You're absolutely right. It's very difficult to predict the outcome of the election, um, but we definitely expect that the equity market of Taiwan will continue to trade on the fundamental outlook of the economy, precisely about the global semiconductor industry, uh, given that Taiwan is the center and big supplier uh, of the semiconductor globally. In addition, I think that most recently, the general AI demand has driven a lot of growth among all different industries within the hardware and the semi-related equipment side in Taiwan. So that was a key driver of the key growth of Taiwan and also Taiwanese equity markets. So we expect going forward from the fundamental side, we should continue to see this driver um, manifest itself uh, throughout 2024. Okay. Vivian, let's get into the weeds just a little bit. So I don't think too much of our audience is familiar with Taiwan. They have three big parties. We're going to show everybody just to kind of keep it clear. There's DDP. That's the incumbent party that currently controls the presidency and the parliament. There's the Kuomintang, KMT, and there's also the Taiwan People's Party, TPP. So you gave us some scenarios that could be potentially good and potentially bad for investors. I want to start with the incumbent party. If they win the presidency but lose the parliament, what is your outlook? Yeah, I think this could be marginally positive, uh, given that you could provide some checks and balances between uh, the ruling uh, party who would take the presidency position versus the parliament. So we know that if the DPP president 
the candidate wins, we should see more continuity of the policies in Taiwan, including the relationship with mainland China. And that has been quite tense in the last couple of years. So that should be more a kind of a neutral outcome if he wins. However, if the parliament wins by the KMT, which is the opposing party, who has more uh, constructive and also pro-China stance, that should help marginally to improve the relationship between Taiwan and mainland. And I think market will receive that more positively. Uh, so we'll see how that outcome is going to come through. But overall, I think the outcome should be neutral to slightly more positive. Okay. Uh, one last question. You already mentioned the Taiwan economy is heavy, heavily levered to chips and the AI trade right now. What's your outlook for the economy? Of course, we don't know the outcome of this election, but just in general, uh, with so many restrictions from the Biden administration on China, um, so much competition when it comes to AI in general, what direction do you see the Taiwan economy and stock market going this year? Yeah. So this will also very depend on the global economy. So we know that the driver of the uh, Chinese equity market and the macro backdrop is more from the global economy and global semiconductor demand. So if the global economy in 2024 remain quite resilient and don't have major soft landing scenario, I think Taiwanese equity market will continue to do well, right. especially they remain the key supplier of all the major general AI and hardware equipment-related uh, industry. All right, we'll so have to wait and see, Vivian. Vivian Lynn Thurston of William Blair, it is great to see you. I wish we could continue the conversation, but we got to go. Thank you. Sure. All right, coming up here on Worldwide Exchange, we turn back to the Middle East and the new risk premium for oil markets. RBC Capital Markets, Halima Croft joins us. Stay with us. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. <laughs> That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. <laughs> I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. All right, welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. The healthcare sector looking to rebound after selling off for most of last year. Optimism over weight loss drugs, lower medication costs, and a ramp up in surgical procedures, boosting names like Eli Lilly, Boston Scientific, Stryker, and Vertex Pharma to all time highs. Healthcare is currently the best performing SP sector this year, outperforming the broader index, bit of a reversal. And it's not just human health. Animal drug maker Zoetis says more people are demanding human quality healthcare for their pets setting up for what could be a boom in new treatments. Joining me now with much more is Wetney Joseph, CFO of Zoetis. Wetney, good morning. Great to have you here. Good morning, Frank. Thanks for having me on your show. All right. So during the pandemic, we saw a big spike in people adopting pets. So according to your data, currently we have about 85 million dogs in the U.S., about 60 million cats. So your CEO spoke during the JPM Healthcare Conference about this demand for human quality health care. What does that really mean? What does that mean for your business? Look, Frank, uh, as you said, globally, uh, pet owners really see their pets as members of their family. In fact, an extensive study found that 95% of pet owners see their uh, pets as members of their family, and therefore, they expect human quality health care uh, for them just as they get for other uh, members of their family. Uh, and that's been really what's been driving our sector and our industry for a number of years, even before the pandemic. And certainly, as you said, uh, we saw a 10% increase in pet ownership through the pandemic. But these trends have been going on for, for quite a long time, okay. and people have gone from having their pets outside to being inside their homes 
and even in their beds. And so they do see them as members, <laughs> members of their family and they want them to have quality health care. Uh, I have a couple of dogs myself. I do not let them in the bed. Um, one of your new <laughs> drugs that you put out is one for basically pet arthritis. So I didn't even know that existed. Um, give me a sense. Are, do you see people continuing to really be concerned about their dogs and their different ailments? Because I feel like, you know, a generation ago, we just kind of fed our dogs and, as you mentioned, just left them outside. As we continue to go forward, what are the ailments that you see demand picking up for when it comes to medication? We are incredibly excited about the latest breakthrough innovation that we have, which is to treat osteoarthritis pain uh, for both cats and dogs, actually. On the dog side, it's our product, Librella, that we've just launched in the U.S., and we're very excited to bring relief to dogs, uh, not only in the U.S., but around the world, foster arthritis pain, and also to drive uh, growth uh, for our business. And so this will be the latest uh, expectation for a billion-dollar franchise for us, on top of our experience that we have with other billion-dollar franchises in the derm category as well as parasiticides. So potentially a blockbuster. So according to your data, there's a $45 billion global total addressable market for animal health. Two-thirds of your business is pet. The other third is livestock. Give us a sense. What trends are you seeing there? And then as we see the emergence of these GLP-1 drugs, weight loss drugs, does that change the outlook for, you know, livestock demand in general? Does that change your business at all? Livestock is an incredibly durable and essential uh, end of the market. It used to be two-thirds of our business. Now it's about a third. And the global trends that are driving demand for uh, quality animal proteins around the world are population growth, increase in income. And by the way, we have about 8 billion people on the planet today. That's expected to be 10 billion, so 2 billion more by 2050. And so we see significant continued uh, demand for quality protein uh, around the world, as we have seen in the past. And, and really, when you look at livestock, it grows about 2 to 4%, driven by these underlying uh, durable trends that we see. All right, Whitney Joseph, Zoetta CFO and a member of our CNBC CFO Council. It is great to see you. Thank you for being here. Great to see you, Frank. Thank you for having me. All right, as we had to break, coming off a big day for Bitcoin and the first trades of those spot ETFs, the group of 11 ETF issuers, seeing a collective $4.6 billion in volume on their first day of trading. That's according to LSEG. The BlackRock iShares Bitcoin Trust, Grayscale's Bitcoin Trust, and the ARC21 shares Bitcoin ETF seeing the biggest inflows, taking a look at how the second day of trading is shaping up for Grayscale, ARC, as well as Wisdom Tree's Bitcoin fund. You see here all three in the red across the board. The Wisdom Tree one, the hardest hit, at least right now, but we'll have to continue to watch. Remember, Bitcoin itself trades around the clock. Worldwide Exchange, we'll be right back. It is just before 5.30 a.m. in the New York City area, and there is a lot more ahead here on Worldwide Exchange. Here is what's still on deck. We have breaking news out of the Middle East as the U.S. and the U.K. carry out strikes on Houthi targets in Yemen. Oil jumping on the developments. RBC's Halima Croft is standing by to break down the ramifications of these strikes. Turn our attention back to Wall Street. Investors gearing up for a fresh look at inflation after largely shrugging off a slightly hotter than expected CPI report. Also top of the agenda today, the kickoff to earnings season with the big banks in focus. The key metrics you need to watch when those results they start crossing in just about an hour. It is Friday, January 12th, 2024. You're watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. And welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. I'm Frank Holland. Let's pick up a half an hour with a check on U.S. stock futures. After a mostly higher session yesterday, this saw the Dow hit a fresh all-time intraday high. Taking a look, the Dow hitting its highs of this morning, looking like it would open up about 75 points higher. The S&P has swung into positive territory. The Nasdaq 
off of its lows right now. So for the week, stocks are bouncing back after their first down week in 10. The Nasdaq, as you can see, leading by a wide margin, up 3% this week, riding a five-day win streak and on pace for its best week since November. We're also checking the bond market after yesterday's hotter than expected inflation read and ahead of today's producer price report. Taking a look, uh, the 10-year, the benchmark, still below 4%. Yesterday, we saw it top 4%. Right now, 3.97. Okay, that's your morning setup. Now, let's get to this morning's breaking news. The U.S. and the U.K. launching a series of airstrikes overnight against Houthi military targets in Yemen. These attacks in response to weeks of rebel attacks on ships in the Red Sea in defiance of ongoing warnings from the White House. Oil moving sharply higher in response to those attacks. Let's now bring in Halima Croft, RBC Capital Markets, Global Head of Commodity Strategy and a CNBC contributor. She joins me now on the CNBC Newsline. Halima, good morning. It is great to have you here. Thank you so much for having me, Frank. All right, so major developments again. The U.S. and the U.K. striking targets in Yemen uh, to respond and retaliate against the Houthi rebels. Give us a sense. Let's start with the oil market. What do you see as the short-term impact on the oil market? Will we continue to see oil moving higher? Right now, WTI crude up 3.5%. I mean, I think the market is going to wait to see whether we see this spread to a significant waterway for oil like the Straits of Hormuz. People will be watching to see what will Iran do? Obviously, Iran is involved in all three sort of threat vectors in this war. They were involved in supplying the Houthis with weapons, financial support, intelligence support. They're also involved in Lebanon with Hezbollah, in Iraq with those militias. So the question will be, does Iran become more deeply embroiled in this conflict? But in the immediate aftermath of these strikes, we'll be watching to see that the Houthis, they expand the target list. They target, for example, Red Sea energy infrastructure. That is why the Saudis are deeply concerned about the U.S. action. They expressed concern overnight. They've called for de-escalation. I think they are concerned that the Houthis could respond by hitting the Jazan refinery. The, okay. Those are the type of targets I think they would be looking at. All right. So we asked you this question a few days ago when we had you on. I got to ask you again. You were just kind of alluding to it. What is the escalation risk here? Uh, President Biden and a Houthi spokesperson both making some pretty inflammatory comments. I mean, the Houthis have said that they will respond. The Houthis survived years of Saudi bombing campaigns. And so the question is, what do they have in store next for the U.S. and its coalition partners? Will they continue to hit ships? in the Red Sea? Or again, will they respond by starting to hit critical Red Sea energy infrastructure? Again, that is why the Saudis, I think, are very concerned about today's actions. The Saudis and the Emiratis have not joined the coalition strikes on Yemen. They have a lot to lose in an escalation situation. All right. um, I want to turn to the entire global economy. If we continue to see this escalate, uh, I know uh, Secretary of State Antony Blinken said he didn't believe it was escalation, but, you know, very sharp military action here. Um, What do you see as the impact to the global economy, at least in the short term? Of course, we don't know all the twists and turns this conflict may take. I mean, certainly the major shipping lines have indicated that they are not going back through this Red Sea choke point. So they are going to continue to route ships around the Cape of Good Hope in South Africa. That adds 10 days to those ships. It makes the goods more expensive when they reach consumers. And so that is going to be a, you know, I think a, a hangover from what we have seen. I don't see that situation abating. The bigger question, though, again, when you talk about oil markets is, does it expand? Do we start to see more significant waterways? I mean, the Straits of Hormuz is the critical energy choke point. In 2019, the Iranians did target ships 
in that waterway. They have the capacity to do so. They've hit critical energy sites like Saudi Arabia's Abcake facility. So it really will matter what Iran's role is going to be in this conflict in the coming days and weeks. Are they going to sit it out and let their proxies do the fighting, or do they become more directly involved? And the last thing I'll say, Frank, is the Iranians this week, they hijacked a tanker and took it back to Iran. So they just showed that they are willing to escalate in this situation. That was not a de-escalatory move, seizing that oil tanker. All right, Helene McCroftsy, and there's some big questions for the oil market. Speaking of, we're seeing Brent crude, the international benchmark, hitting just about 80 bucks a barrel right now. WTI and Brent, both more than 3% higher. We'll continue to watch the moves in oil throughout the morning. All right, turn our attention now to the kickoff to earnings season as we await reports from some of the country's largest banks today. Our Leslie Picker has the key themes to watch ahead of the tape. Today's results come amid a huge run-up in bank names recently. The KBW index is up about 30% since November, with the big six each up at least 20% over that period. The prospect of a Fed pivot and a soft landing serving as a rising tide to lift the sector, especially at the end of 2023. But contrast those moves with the fourth quarter EPS estimates, with the street seeing average declines of 14%. On the bottom line, bank investors have been largely looking past fourth quarter numbers, though, and bidding up the names, focusing on what is in store for 2024. So that means the outlooks that they get from bank executives on the calls and so forth will be key. And depending on what we hear, it could get a little choppy over the next few weeks, just given the recent outperformance we've seen in the bank names. Erica Najarian of UBS writes, quote, the bar for this rally to continue is high as the average bank in our universe is asset sensitive or positively sensitive to rising rates over the next 12 months and credit quality remains pristine, suggesting both near-term downward pressure and lingering overhang on EPS expectations. In other words, the banks appear to be at somewhat of an inflection point. Citi earlier this week disclosed several items, such as the FDIC special assessment and restructuring charges that will impact billions in the firm's fourth quarter numbers. We'll be sitting down with CFO Mark Mason later today uh, to discuss the fourth quarter results as well as kind of what they see moving forward in 2024. Frank? Thank you to our Leslie Picker. Let's dig deeper into the big banks with Stephen Bigger, Argus Research Director of Financial Institutions Research. Stephen, good morning. It is great to have you here. Morning, Frank. All right. So four big banks reporting today. What's your rating on the banks? Uh, do you have expectations uh, that investors should be especially mindful of? I know it's a group of four, but give us a sense. Overall, what are your expectations? Yeah, we do have uh, buy ratings on the, the four banks reporting today, uh, J.P. Morgan, Bank of America, Wells and, and Citi. So I think our, our bullish base case really is that the, the economy avoids recession here, that the Fed is given credit uh, for the soft landing. Credit quality doesn't deteriorate much further from here, and banks are certainly well-reserved at this point. Uh, lower rates will begin to help loan growth here and, and by the back half of 2024, also ease some pressure on uh, deposit costs and the securities portfolios. Uh, and we get some kind of a rebound uh, by the second half in, in IPO and M&A activity. You know, as you know, it's been a, a dismal two years uh, for, for capital markets. And uh, I, just based on pe- a lot of pent-up demand, 
the first phase of, of the improvement tends to be a, a nice rise in equity valuations, which we had in 2023. So phase two should be better conversations and okay. more companies uh, looking to go public and, and acquire other firms. All right, Stephen Bigger with a buy rating for JPM, Bank of America, City, and Wells Fargo. Uh, you mentioned two key things here, loan growth and also deposit costs. Together, you put them together. That's net interest income. What's your outlook for net interest income for these big banks? Well, the fourth quarter is going to be largely down, uh, probably around 10 percent. Uh, the exception to this rule will be J.P. Morgan, who acquired uh, First Republic la- uh, last May and will have a nice bump uh, in net interest income. So, uh, But, yeah, just sequentially and year over year, there, there is th- those uh, pressure on deposit costs has uh, pushed net interest margins a little bit lower. And that's, that's a headwind uh, probably going as well into the first half of this year. Big story last year where the losses that a lot of banks were taking on Treasury. We haven't talked much about it in recent months. What's the outlook when it comes to those at least paper losses when it comes to Treasuries? Absolutely. The, uh, yeah, the, the conversation about the securities portfolio has uh, kind of diminished as uh, rates have, have moved down. So that's put a, a, a good bump uh, up. So I, I think that will continue to be the case. I don't think we'll hear much about that on the on the calls. And if uh, if long term rates continue to stay a little bit lower here after peaking at five uh, percent, I think um, that's that's kind of a non-issue for banks right now. Is there one bank that you're watching that in your mind is going to be the one that's going to signal something to investors, either good or bad? And I also want to get your take on City announcing that they're taking that big charge. Well, J.P. Morgan tends to be the bellwether. They're uh, in so many different areas. They can give us a good read on the consumer. In particular, credit quality among the uh, lower income consumers uh, has has degraded a a little bit here, degraded. Uh, And you have, um, obviously, the capital markets, a weakness there. Uh, They they have been uh, showing some market share gains. So I I think we'll hear uh, something about the conversations being more constructive. Uh, so they, they just have their uh, you know, tentacles in a lot of different spaces. Uh, so I, I think that's the bellwether, uh, with the exception, of course, of net interest uh, income this, this quarter. All right, Stephen Bigger, always great to see you. Thank you for your insight. Again, buy rating on the four big banks reporting later today. All right, coming up here on Worldwide Exchange, it is all about AI. The Red Hot Tech absolutely dominating the conversation at CES. We're going to hear from Dell on how it's looking to capitalize and integrate AI into its lineup of products. Much more WEX coming up after this. Stay with us. All right, welcome back to Worldwide Exchange, the Consumer Electronics Show, or CES, wrapping up a busy week in Vegas as more than 4,000 companies, they show off their latest and greatest gadgets. Our Julia Borson has the key highlights from the event. I'm here at the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas, where there are giant translucent TVs and foldable phones. But this year, artificial intelligence is everywhere. Even this giant poster of a man, that's AI generated. That is not a real person. And across the convention center, generative AI assistants and tools are incorporated into every different sort of gadget. Samsung unveiling its AI companion robot called the Bali, which interacts with other smart devices. It can project pictures and videos on walls or Check on your pets when you're not there by sending pictures of them to you. Its new AI refrigerator tells you what's inside, the expiration date, and suggests recipes based on the ingredients you have. It even helps you order the ingredients you don't have. This year, there are more AI-enabled cars and tractors than ever, with Intel just announcing new AI-customized chips for vehicles as the company battles with NVIDIA and AMD to power the Internet of Things. Mercedes showcasing an in-car generative AI assistant. 
How about I take you on a unique Vegas adventure? Mercedes' operating system is designed to be empathetic and respond to the mood of the user. We're bringing the system to be way more natural. It's going to sound like a human. It's going to be predictive. We can actually give you suggestions on where you want to go, turning on the seat heating, making you more comfortable in the car. And L'Oreal became the first beauty company to have a CEO keynote at CES. It's here with an AI-powered beauty advisor and hair coloring tool, as well as virtual makeup try-on. Now, not all the AI was ready for prime time. Meta's showcasing its Ray-Ban glasses that can record photos and videos. But the new AI tools that Mark Zuckerberg announced that they'd be adding to the glasses were not ready to demo just yet. Frank, back over to you. All right, I'll join your boards and having a great time. One of the many companies at CES is Dell, out with a new lineup of laptops that are powered by artificial intelligence. Joining me now is Sam Bird, president of the Client Solutions Group at Dell. Sam, good morning. Thanks for being here. Hey, good morning. Thanks for having me, Frank. All right, so you guys made some news at CES unveiling your lineup of AI-powered laptops. So we've heard a lot of talk about AI and how it might change laptops and even desktops. What is an AI-powered laptop? What does that really mean? Well, Frank, to do a little grounding, we've had AI in PCs for several years. Uh, So we've used machine learning algorithms to improve performance of the PC, think about making battery life better by configuring settings, uh, think about optimizing performance. You can run AI workloads on our high-end workstations uh, as well. But the reason we're talking about AI PCs and really excited is the advent of the neural processor or NPU. So it's a power-efficient coprocessor built into PCs that allows you to run AI workloads efficiently on mainstream devices. And that's going to change the way that people interact and use their PC and really open up some exciting uh, options for our customers. So to be clear, this is running AI on the device itself, not from a cloud service. Um, I want to talk to you. Exactly. All right, I want to talk to you about what your customers are telling you about these devices in demand. Uh, the majority of your business is enterprise customers. A few examples are Home Depot, M- M- uh, sports car maker McLaren. What are they saying to you about their needs for these AI-powered computers and also demand? Yeah, our customers, Frank, want to make their teams more productive and be more capable. So that's where, uh, as you said, our business is about 80% commercial in our, our PC business at Dell, our customers are looking for ways to be more effective in the work that they do. And that's where the advent of these neural processors are bringing new ways of operating on systems. So, you know, imagine something as simple as you come back from a week's vacation and being able to have a system that's summarizing the emails you got. It's summarizing the meetings that are coming up, helping you get ready for those meetings, helping you reply to colleagues, your boss that's engaged you. Uh, We're going to see that kind of capability in the PC that's going to turn it into this uh, great companion and assistant in getting the work done that you need to to help these companies innovate. So with that in mind, uh, Microsoft also announced that it's AI Copilot is going to be available in your new line of AI PCs. So how do those two things work together? If you can already run AI on the PC itself, what is the Copilot going to do? Yeah, we see capability. There's capability today that goes to the cloud. Uh, What we're going to build by building the neural processors on the device, 
you're going to be take, able to take advantage of low latency, more capability on the device that's faster and better. So think about whether it's Microsoft applications or other applications that you use on your device running really effectively okay. on your PC and enabling you to go do different things. We're also going to see AI models, and this to me is the most exciting piece. If I look at the software companies out there, the amount of innovation I see today in using these okay. neural processors that will be across PCs and building AI into the applications we use every day, that's going to help us with innovation. Sam. And we're going to see these the companies you talked about, the most progressive companies are investing in technology to drive innovation in their space. Okay. And they're going to take these big AI models, and they're going to be able to run them in workflows that they do every day on the PC to make their team more effective, more efficient, and delivering for their customers. All right, Sam Bird of Dell, great to talk to you. Uh, Dell out with a new line of AI PCs. Thank you again. All right, coming up here on Worldwide Exchange, the one word that every investor needs to know today, plus investors preparing for a one-two punch of fresh inflation data and the kickoff of earnings season. We lay out the moves to make on a very busy trading day ahead. Wex, we'll be right back after this. All right, welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. We have a big day ahead here on CNBC, a pair of big exclusives from our Phil LeBeau. Coming up on Squawk Box, FAA Administrator Mike Whitaker at 7.40 a.m. Eastern. This comes just one day after the agency launched an official investigation into Boeing and its 737 MAX 9 lineup. Plus, do not miss a one-on-one with Delta CEO Ed Bastian after his company reports results later today. That's also coming up on Squawk Box in the 7 a.m. Eastern hour. All right, a very busy trading day shaping up to close out a positive week for the markets. Ahead of the closing bell, we get the latest look at inflation with the December producer price index. That's expected to show a slight uptick from last month in both the headline and the core figures. Also, earnings season kicks off with a number of high-profile names reporting. We're talking Bank of America, Citigroup, J.P. Morgan Chase, Wells Fargo, Delta Airlines, and United Health. Also on watching oil this morning on the back of those allied airstrikes on Houthi targets in Yemen. Taking a look right now, we're seeing oil hitting its highs of this morning. WTI right now 4% higher. Brent crude easing back just a bit, but still very close to $80 a barrel, up almost, uh, oh, just over 3.5%. And of course, crypto coming off a big debut day with those new 11 spot ETFs that saw massive inflows yesterday. Right now, Three of the bigger ones uh, in the red do the Wisdom Tree one, the most, uh, you know, on the downside, down about three and a half percent. The Grayscale ETF down just about one percent. Ahead of all of that, let's get a check on futures. A lot to digest here. Taking a look at futures. Uh, we had a mixed picture earlier today. Still seeing the same thing right now. The Dow off of its highs of earlier this morning, but still looks like it would open up about 45 points higher. So with all that in mind, we're going to take a breath and we're going to bring in Simeon Hyman, global investment strategist at ProShares Advisors, as well as Bill Stone, chief investment officer at the Glenview Trust Company. Good morning to both of you. Great to have you both here on a day like this. Morning. All right, Simeon, morning. you're here in the studio with me. I'm going to start with you. Um, looking ahead to today, what are you expecting from the markets? We have some macro things. Um, again, the U.S. and the U.K. attacking Houthi targets, oil prices moving higher. Then we have earnings season kicking off. So many moving parts. I think one thing that's been taking too much focus is on the Fed, because we've already had the rally on the long end of the curve. And we're stable there in all likelihood now, because longer-term inflation expectations should hold steady at 2%. 2% real, that makes a 4% 10-year. I think that sets the tone for everything, and it even puts in context, let's hope for peace in the Middle East, but it even puts in context the Houthi activity, because as long as this doesn't spur longer-term inflation, even if the Fed 
cuts a little bit later than folks anticipate. I think you still see stabilization on the long end, and that means stabilization of P.E. multiples, focus on earnings. All right. Speaking of earnings, Bill, I'm going to come over to you. Um, you're actually looking at the big bank earnings specifically when it comes to commercial loan activity. We're going to show the audience a chart that you share with us. Um, it shows commercial loan activity taking a very sharp move to the downside. With that in mind, what's your expectations for big bank earnings coming up later today? They're not going to be good. Uh, I mean, I think that's a given. The good news is the market already knows the fourth quarter earnings are not going to be good, both for what you're showing here, which is the loans have just fallen off in terms of year-over-year growth in loans, but also the FDIC special assessment. There's just a lot in this fourth quarter. Really, the, the bank stocks are going to be all about the future uh, and when that kind of turn is. Um, and obviously, you've seen them run up quite a bit here late in uh, last year. And it wasn't because the earnings were supposed to be good in the fourth quarter. It's really all about you know, 2024. And I would, I would actually venture to say it's more uh, toward the latter half of 2024. Yeah, uh, we're just showing the audience the yellow line. That's the commercial real estate loans, again, taking the, the sharpest dip. The top line there, the blue line, that's overall loans. So, again, just to give people the context of just how impacted the commercial real estate market has been. Um, Bill, I'm going to stick with you. Looking ahead uh, to earnings season, right now we got some latest data from Refinitiv, or excuse me, LSEG, actually, um, just yesterday. I know you sent us some data from FactSet, but it shows a very muted growth in Q4 right now, just a, a 1% earnings growth in Q4. What does that signal to you about the markets, and, and how do you think that influences things going forward? Excuse me, 4.7%. So I think we'll end up, you know, having, you know, I think that's actually a pretty reasonable estimate. Um, you know, facts that was a bit lower, but but I actually probably go more toward the number you're showing. Um, and really, you know, it's probably the same story, frankly, um, that it's going to be more about 2024 when it's hopeful that we get more double digit kind of earnings growth, um, assuming we dodge any sort of recession. And that's really part of the or really the big story of the end of last year was the higher probabilities of soft landing, if in fact that happens, you should see nice earnings growth overall in 2024. All right, Simi, I'm going to turn back to you. Uh, today, PPI as well. Is that meaningful? Yesterday, the investors just shrugged off CPI. was a tick hotter than expected. Does PPI matter right now, or, or are investors looking ahead to other things like uh, PCE and, of course, the Fed meeting itself? It's a shrug off for the same reason we just mentioned that the longer-term inflation expectations are likely to remain stable. And if you look at the correlation of stock prices, they actually have not that much to do with the Fed funds rate. They have everything to do with the 10-year Treasury. So even if we see a little variability in even the one-year, because maybe we think Fed cuts are coming a little bit later, not that big a deal for the equity markets. All right, we're almost out of time. We're not doing the WEX word of the day, but just in general, what are you expecting today? Volatile um, rally, of course. Again, we have macro factors with the U.S. and the U.K. striking the Houthi rebels, and at the same time, we have earnings season. Yeah, I think you're going to see stability today, as long as that the Houthi activity doesn't expand to to infrastructure, then you're likely to be in the same place. We're waiting for earnings results. We're waiting to see if people, if, okay. if companies can come with the double-digit stuff. All right. Simeon Hyman and Bill Stone, thank you to both of you. We have to end the show right now, but appreciate your time and your insight. Squawk Box is coming up next. Have a great day. You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. 
That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. 